So following on, this is kind of a part two in the series, looking into the number of young men that are being found after disappearing, sometimes for days or weeks or months, and then being found in water, with no real explanation as to how or why they got there. Most of them are ruled as accidental drowning, sometimes suicide, but the events around their disappearances leading up to them being found are in very many cases highly suspicious. I'm going back now to 1998, when the New York Daily News featured three deaths in which the young men were all ruled to have drowned. The newspaper said, They are cases tinged with mystery that captured the sympathy of a city. When each vanished, their parents conducted highly publicised searches for them. Three were found floating in the river, with no apparent signs of trauma. How each entered the water has not been determined. My boy was murdered. It wasn't an accident, said Gitty Bender. Her son Joshua was found in the Hudson River nearly two weeks after he'd left his yeshiva university dorm. At the time, Robert Martin, the deputy inspector of police, did admit that he found the circumstances strange. He said it is a little unusual to have three males in the river of the same age, but he also said they had found no overlapping commonalities other than that, although they would continue to work it, he said. While the newspaper did contact the FBI, a spokesman for the FBI was quoted as saying that they would not be involved in any of the investigations because, quote, there is no evidence of a serial killer at work here. It would seem then, at this stage, no one yet was considering it could be the work of a group. I mentioned earlier in the other podcast episode that Josh Stossack's father, another victim, and the partner that he works with, who is a retired ex-federal agent, and they've worked on these cases for many years, compiling dossiers and evidence. Well, the ex-agent stands in the shadows, but he holds an astonishing amount of information about these perpetrators. He managed to trace a truck to the Midwest with a link to the cases in New York. So perhaps we should go to the Midwest now. It was in the Midwest that Chris Jenkins, a very popular student at the University of Minnesota, and ironically, as many victims are, was also on the college swim team, disappeared one night in 2003. When his body was discovered in the Mississippi River four months after he disappeared, to the police, his death looked like an accidental fall in the river after a night of drinking. And yet, very disturbingly, his body was found encased in ice, with his hands folded over his chest as though he was in a coffin, and in a manner that is wholly inconsistent with the official verdict of drowning. People drowning do not end up in this position nor do they end up like Todd Gibe in Michigan, who was found bobbing upright in the water, although he was dead, or many others found floating face up. Though Chris Jenkins' body was supposed to have been in the water for four months, his shirt was still tucked into his pants, and the slip-on shoes he had worn that night as part of his Halloween costume were still on his feet in the fast-flowing Mississippi River. A feat which would seem completely impossible, and surely... If he had fallen in, he would have been frantically struggling to save himself from drowning. This is reminiscent of another case, that of Dan Zamlin, who also ended up dead in the Mississippi River. He was missing for almost a month, yet as his mother pointed out, his diabetic pod was still around his neck when he was found, and had not floated off, despite the currents of the river being particularly strong when he was found. 
The drug, GHB, often called the date rape drug in England, was found in both of their systems. After justified protest from his family, which took many years, Chris Jenkins' death was reclassified as homicide. Chris Jenkins disappeared while still dressed in his Halloween costume after being kicked out of the bar he was drinking in, the Lone Tree Bar and Grill in downtown Minneapolis, for allegedly being disruptive. He was left outside without his coat or wallet. Tracker dogs hired privately by the family traced his scent to a parking garage. It appeared that he had been abducted, bundled into a van, and driven away to his terrible fate. He had been clutching pieces of his own hair, on the day of his memorial service, a woman phoned the priest conducting the memorial service to say that she'd seen something written over one of Chris's missing persons posters at a bus stop. Someone had written, loaded into SUV, paid in dollars green. The drug GHB was found in his system. He'd never been known to take drugs. His mother said, the evil is rampant, deep and widespread. He was abducted, driven around for hours and tortured, then taken to the river and killed. Then his body was positioned and taken to a different part of the river and left there. An hour away and a year earlier, student Joshua Gimon disappeared. He was a student at the College of St. Benedict's and St. John's in Eau Claire, Minnesota. It was Saturday, November the 9th, 2002. He was last seen at his dorms on campus. Private tracker dogs, which were brought in by his family, traced his scent to a pond behind St. John's Abbey, next door to the university. Though the pond was examined with sonar, he was not in the water. He's never been found. Joshua disappeared just before he was due to present a mock trial on the alleged abuse carried out by clergy associated with his university, who resided at the Abbey next door. In 2004, the Friends of Joshua presented a paper to their university, remarked, when presenting their paper, that if he had not disappeared, he would have been graduating with them all. They wrote, Bodies don't just disappear, unless someone makes them, and feasible alternatives are running thin. Explanations have become laughable. The prevalent explanation is that he somehow got lost after a night of drinking, ending up in the campus lake. They point out, the Trident Foundation is the leading authority on search and rescue in water, and they cleared all the bodies of water on the campus. Quoting the head of the search organisation, they say, This private search and rescue team have never searched a lake, and then later found a body. In other words, they've never missed a body that was there in the water. They've always found one if one was there. Scott Rom, the director, added, I would recommend the search heads in another direction. Our technology provides very high degrees of reassurance that he is somewhere else. Josh was last seen leaving a dorm room, just a couple of minutes' walk from his own dorm, but he never reached his own room. He didn't have glasses on, he had no coat and no car. It didn't seem that he would have been heading out anywhere far. What's extremely strange is that the tracker dog that picked up his scent, that led to the pond behind the abbey, also picked up another boy's scent, Chris Jenkins, the University of Minnesota student just discussed, who disappeared on Halloween in downtown Minneapolis. He'd never been to this college campus in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, an hour's drive away, yet his scent was detected there. Another student, Jared Dion, again like the other young men, was a popular and athletic student. He was discovered in the river near Wisconsin University in 2004, five days after he disappeared. 
His baseball cap was found very close by in Riverside Park by a group of joggers. According to them, the baseball cap was casually hanging on a post, not far from where police believed the young man must have jumped in or fallen into the river. At a later autopsy, it was found that he had been moved ten hours prior to his death. He could not have been dead any longer than 72 hours, meaning he'd been alive for some time prior to his death and had not died the day of his disappearance. Two days were unaccounted for, which again implies that he had been kept somewhere and placed in the water later. It also implied he could have been drowned elsewhere. The source for these details about him come from the book Case Studies in Drowning Forensics by Kevin Gannon and Professor Lee Gilbertson. Pathologists don't always routinely test if the water found in the lungs is from the same open source water in which they are found. He could have been drowned in a bathtub or in a van, driven around with a specially made water compartment in the back of it. Jared was dead before he entered the water. As one anonymous commentator says, they are drowned elsewhere and dumped after the drug is out of their system. That's why a lot of the victims are found in areas that have already been searched. An ME isn't always capable of knowing which body of water the victim drowned in. They could all have been drowned in baths, but as the killers seem to be so mobile, I think it's more that they are using a white panel van with a tank of water in the back, coming from a guy who knows more about these murders than anyone living. Why would he say that last sentence? Is he pretending to have inside knowledge of the killers? Or is he just someone pretending to know what's going on? Is it a brag or a taunt coming from someone involved? Or just a fantasist? But could this be how they're doing it? Bodies have been found in different states at the same time. It cannot possibly be the work of just one man. While it's certainly possible, and indeed likely, that some of these cases of the 300 plus deaths are accidental, or victim of murder, unrelated completely to the idea that there are a group or groups going around doing this, however the overwhelming majority of these cases do seem to be connected. Jared had last been seen in a bar, where he told a friend he was going to a party afterward. He was seen talking to a blonde, but it was never determined if this was a male or female, and they've never been identified. He was found in the opposite direction to which he had told his friends he was heading. He was alive for three days after his disappearance. He was drowned, but he didn't drown in the river. He was held, kept alive for three days, drowned, then taken to the river and placed into it. His autopsy results showed no pink froth, according to retired Kevin Gannon, and this indicated that there was no struggle to save himself from being drowned. In a struggle to survive while drowning, the blood vessels in the lungs will burst and seep blood into the body. This did not happen when he drowned. There was no struggle. These young men are not trying to save themselves, and yet, as Professor Craig Jackson in England says, and he's spoken out about the Manchester cases in England, which we will get to in another podcast... He says, suicide by drowning accounts for only 4% of suicides. It's not a popular method. Requires the person to weigh themselves down with something, and invariably the natural survival instinct will kick in, and they will save themselves from drowning. None of these college boys are trying to save themselves. Why is this? Because they are often dead or unconscious before they even enter the water. In all possibility. There is a possibility that some victims' clothes have been tampered with prior to being found sometimes being put back on their bodies the wrong way, for example, or missing, suggesting that they were removed by someone. Is it a gang of serial killers, a syndicate of some kind, a cult, an organised group that has crisscrossed America, travelling to college campuses in different cities, in a dozen different states, and an ever-increasing murder spree? 
It would almost seem as though the men are being deliberately targeted. Why are many of the bodies returned to the area previously searched? Do the killers enjoy this so much that they like to tease and taunt law enforcement? But why death by drowning? Why this particular method? When I was talking to Professor Gilbertson back in 2014, he raised concerns that the unexplained phenomenon of identical young men ending up dead seemed to have spread to England too. I'd been looking at the cases in Manchester, and at the time I wasn't convinced that they actually tallied with the US cases. And I do still think there is a big discrepancy between the actual Manchester cases and the US ones. There is a big difference. But we'll get to those in another podcast. Well, Professor Greg Jackson, head of psychology at the University of Birmingham in England, has officially joined the growing number of people who are perturbed, alarmed, and feel there is something more sinister at play than accidental drowning after more than 85 men in the last five years have been found dead in the canals and ponds of the northern city of Manchester. Talking to the broadsheet The Telegraph, he says, The number is far higher than one would expect, and from the data I just don't believe these were suicides. Canals are not a popular site for suicide, and people rarely choose this for their method, but they make ideal grounds for predators. Many of the reports from the coroners are inconclusive. Well, it is especially difficult to commit suicide in shallow water, and some of the canals there are less than knee-deep. In 2011, Mike Shaw wrote of the grief, the anger, and the sense of helplessness he felt because he could not save his best friend. He writes, Sly McCurry did not walk out onto the ice of Lake Superior, that's cold January 2010, winter night, and fall through and drown. He was murdered. No one can ever convince me it was anything but murder. He was more than a friend to me. His smile would light up a room. He was always full of life, always happy. He would never have went from the nightclub to that secluded area alone in 20 degrees below weather with no coat and drown. He had no car and after being thrown out of the club via the back door on the alleged grounds that he was drunk, he was left in the alleyway. Four months later, his body was found in the lake. I was a trained fighter for many years and felt protective over my friends. I've never received closure. His death was ruled accidental due to cold water immersion. His sense stopped at the back of the hotel. Like clockwork, I see these killers strike all over the northeast, he says. How do some of them end up dead in water, often having apparently climbed over high fences and jumped into ponds or retention tanks, just a few inches deep, and forgotten how to swim? How do very fit wrestlers, sportsmen, and most notably, young men on swim teams, end up dead in shallow water, only inches deep, having suddenly become unable to swim? We have the terrible case of Walton Ward. His sister says her brother also died in inexplicable, mysterious and terrible circumstances. She says Walton was last seen alive at Landshark's Bar, Indianapolis, with a bouncer at approximately 1.20 to 1.30 a.m. on October the 12th, 2012. His last attempt to save his own life was at 1.30 a.m. when he dialed 911 from his phone for help. His killers interrupted his 911 call and murdered him. He knew he was going to be killed. His desperate call lasted for one second, which was just enough to register to the nearest cell phone tower. But it wasn't long enough to save his life. That was the last time we knew him to be alive, until construction workers discovered his body on October the 22nd, floating in the river a few blocks from the bar ten days after his desperate call on that night. His phone was found on the bank of the river behind a restaurant. The police said he must have been drunk, fallen in, or gone swimming in the dead of winter.
Authorities ruled that he had died of asphyxia due to drowning. The thing was, her brother was a Muay Thai fighter. He knew how to look after himself, and yet he too died. He drowned in just inches of water. Why have many victims made very disturbing phone calls after they disappear? Why are several of them screaming down the phone before their phone goes dead? What are they seeing? Who or what is there with them causing them such uncontrollable terror? In England, David Plunkett, in February 2012, David's friend called David's parents to explain that he'd lost David and wanted to know if they'd heard from him. His friend said that David had been kicked out of the event they were attending for allegedly being intoxicated. David and his friend had been attending a music event at the racetrack in the city centre in Manchester. His mother reassured his friend that she would call David herself and find out where he was. When her son answered the call, at first, she heard only silence, and what sounded like him walking somewhere very quiet. Then after a few minutes, while the call was still connected, he suddenly began to howl. His mother described it as a horrific sound, and utterly chilling. She said, I couldn't get through to him. He couldn't talk. He couldn't tell me where he was. A good seven to eight minutes into the call, there was this ghastly screaming. Unable to get him to listen to her, she passed the phone to her husband while she dialed the police on their landline. His father, too, could not get him to listen, to tell him where he was or what was going on. He says, I raised my voice to get him to snap out of it, but I couldn't get through to him. He couldn't talk. We couldn't help him. Then there was total silence. Neither could the police help him, because David was unable to stop screaming. His body was found three weeks later in the city canal. His mother later said that she can only understand that he must have seen something so terrifying, and went to the newspapers to speak out about their distress, caused by having to endure listening to their son, screaming down the phone to them in the last moments of his life. The police later traced his phone to a location two miles outside of the city, in an area David had no reason to be heading to and wouldn't even have been familiar with. His phone was found as though placed on the path beside the canal. His glasses, too, were found there beside the phone. A former murder detective from Scotland Yard was hired for the TV documentary makers on Channel 4 to investigate his and two other young men who had been found drowned. What the detective couldn't understand was why David would have gone to the location voluntarily. The route to the canal, where he was said to have entered the water, was down a small dark side road that appeared to be a dead end. The detective also could not fathom how the coroner and police had established that he must have fallen into the water accidentally, when in order to do that, he would have had to scale a high fence. The authorities said that he had slipped down the embankment and into the water, and that was why he'd screamed. If he had slipped and fallen in, disregarding for a moment that he would have had to have got back up after falling down and then climbed over a high fence, it's entirely possible he could have screamed out in surprise and shock, but surely he wouldn't have howled continually for the length of several minutes. His mother, a former head teacher, spoke out. She said, it is not a case of young man drinks too much, falls in canal. Someone is responsible for his death, and the version of events that have been given are simply not adding up and the case leaves many more questions than answers. He could have been attacked. He could have had his drink spiked. Anything. Well, his case is very reminiscent of the case of student Brandon Swanson of Marshall, Wisconsin, who disappeared in a field in May 2008, after his phone call got cut off to his father, who was out looking for him. His father said, It didn't sound like he'd fallen over or tripped. It sounded like he was shocked by something, horrified even. Brandon has never been found. Tracker dogs went to the canal where he'd last been known to have been, out in the rural fields and farmlands. But the dogs tracked away from the water across a field, 
where his sense suddenly stopped. A swear word uttered in what was both surprise and shock was the last thing his father heard, ending a fifty-minute telephone call, as his father kept him on the phone, trying to find him. His son had called him late that evening to say that he'd run his car into a dried mud bank and couldn't get it out. It was stuck, and he'd asked his parents to come and get him. It was May 2008, and student Brandon had been driving home to Marshall, a rural and mainly agricultural county comprised mainly of canals and wind projects. In fact, he'd just completed a technical college course in wind turbines. After waiting a while for his parents to turn up, he became impatient when they told him on the phone that they were having trouble locating him. He told them he was going to walk toward the nearest town, whose lights, he said, were in the distance, and he said that he expected them to meet him en route. However, it would seem that perhaps Brandon was slightly off in his description of where he thought he was, because no matter how hard his parents looked for him, they couldn't locate him or his car. He continued walking on toward the lights in the distance as his parents searched for him, now well past midnight, and they stayed in contact throughout, with his father keeping him talking on the phone. Brandon was certain he knew where he was, and he couldn't understand why his parents couldn't find him, and he was becoming increasingly irritated. Yet his parents had gone to exactly where he said he was, and he was definitely not there. They continued to drive around the roads, unable to see him or the car, and then suddenly the swear word in which he sounded suddenly shocked and surprised and horrified. Then the phone cut off. It didn't sound like he'd tripped or fallen over. It sounded like he was shocked by something, horrified by something, but by what? Whatever it was, Brandon did not answer his phone again, despite his father constantly calling the number back. He wasn't answering his phone for some reason, and they had no idea what had just happened to him, where he was, or what might be happening to him still. Desperately, they continued to drive around, urgently trying to find his location and get him to answer his phone, and in fact, they proceeded to spend several hours that early morning desperately looking for him, yet still, they failed to find a sign of him. Around dawn, they called the police, and a search for the missing student was immediately initiated. It wasn't until the following day that the police were able to locate his missing car by tracing signals received at cell phone towers from his cell phone. The car was, in fact, nearly 20 miles from the town the boy had thought he'd been heading to on foot. He'd told his parents he was close to the town when he'd called them to come and find him, but he was wrong, and that was why they couldn't find him that night. He'd been nearly 20 miles away from where he thought he was. He'd thought that the lights he could see on the horizon were the town, but he was wrong, and he was many miles from the town. And so while his parents had gone to that location, he'd been wandering around miles away from them. That explained why they couldn't find him, but it didn't explain why he could not be found now. The search party could not find him or his cell phone. What investigators started to believe was that he'd accidentally walked into and then fallen into the river as he was talking to his father. That could explain his shock, they thought. However, his father wasn't convinced. He said he may have had a drink, and in fact, according to friends, he'd been drinking that evening, but he definitely hadn't had enough for him to have been drunk, they said. And his father said he didn't sound drunk at all throughout the phone conversation that lasted almost an hour. It didn't seem plausible that he could fall in and not get out. Despite an exhaustive search of both the water and the land, however, he could not be found. Searchers said the river was flowing fast at that time and could have swept him away, but the water was extensively searched and they could not find his body. After the official searches ended, his family, along with volunteers, didn't give up. They continued to look for him for weeks. The only clue came from the canine search dogs that seemed to indicate that his scent had travelled in one particular direction. But that did not lead them to finding his body, as the scent just stopped. However, perhaps that was a clue that he couldn't have gone in the water after all. 
Did his call, which ended so abruptly in shock, indicate that he had somehow become the victim of foul play? Had someone arrived there at the scene? Had they abducted him? His heartbroken mother talked to news channels after the incident. She said he wasn't injured. He said he was okay. No damage to his car. He felt confident about where he was and he was saying that we were lost. The minute the call dropped, I became sick. I knew. I knew it was wrong and I knew it was bad. Well, he's still missing. 22-year-old Josh Snell vanished in June 2005 in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. His brother later told reporters he'd been in town to attend a wedding and that afterward his brother had gone with friends to some bars in town. Four days later, his brother's body was pulled from the Chippewa River. His brother said he does not believe his brother just wandered into the water. He went missing on the same day as Todd Gabe. He was found in the pond in Michigan, his body bobbing upright, which is not how you drown. Josh's last contact seems to have been when he called a friend late that night with a disturbing message. In the phone call, his brother says, He said he was scared, that he was hiding in some brush, that he was running from someone. He said he didn't know who it was or how he was going to get away. He said he didn't do anything, but he was terrified and he was scared for his life. Another source close to him quotes, He called a friend to say that he thought unknown people were following him and that he might be in trouble with the police. The local police, however, said they had no contact with Snell. The case of promising med student Brian Schaefer, who disappeared in an upstairs bar in the South Campus Gateway in Ohio in 2006. Or just like Joey Laboot, who disappeared in the same town and was found with no water in his lungs. In a river, Brian Schaefer is still missing. In Tupper Lake, northern New York State, Colin Ellis had returned on spring break from his pre-med course at Brockport State University. He'd gone to a party to see some of his old school friends. Later, his brother would make a memorial video about Colin. He says, Colin went to a party one night. Then no one heard from him. No one really saw him. They just found his ID and personal belongings on the road, and that was the last of him. 400 local people would turn up to help look for him. The whole community came together. He was said to have been the nicest, kindest soul anyone could wish to meet. He was very handsome, and everyone knew him for his gorgeous smile. He was very bright, always ready to joke, but an intelligent debater. He was, according to those who knew him, one of the most genuine young men you could meet. He was very popular, and no one had a bad word to say about him. He had a positive influence on everyone who knew him, and a very promising future. At around 1.40am on the morning of March the 11th, 2012, a motorist saw a young man walking along a remote stretch of Route 3 in the Adirondack Forest. This motorist was concerned by the appearance of the young man as he reached alongside him, because as he had been driving toward him, the young man had been walking with no coat on, close to the white line of the road, and flailing his arms. The motorist, Mr. Rosentresser, a local resident and the editor of the local newspaper, the Lake Placid News, was concerned, but not knowing the boy personally and with his elderly mother in the passenger seat, he was also cautious about stopping. Instead, he drove to the nearest police station only a couple of miles away and reported what he'd seen. Within ten minutes, the police arrived at the spot where the young man had been seen and searched the stretch of the road. He was no longer there. He'd been walking in the direction away from the party and away from his home. Later, a former schoolmate came forward to report that he'd seen his friend walking along the road and had pulled over to offer him a ride home. He said that Colin declined his offer, telling him that he was waiting for a ride from a friend. 
When one of his siblings, Lyndon, was later asked why they thought their brother had been walking in the opposite direction to his home, he said, no one knows. That's the million dollar question. The following Monday, during a massive search mission, authorities came across his driver's ID, together with one of his sneakers, lying on the roadside, in the same area in which he disappeared. This was initially reported in the newspapers by WHEC Rochester News. However, after this initial newspaper report, it appears that the story about the missing shoe was for some reason redacted in later editions. Later reports worded it as, One of the first parties to go out Monday found a piece of Collins' personal effects on the edge of the South Side Road, west of the intersection of Route 3 and Setting Pole Dam Road, where their search began. Police say the crew of searchers found two of his belongings, but did not go into detail. Searchers involved forest rangers, helicopter crews, state troopers, crews and hundreds of volunteers. It was a Type 3 search, where searchers are positioned just a few feet apart. The search was so tight, volunteers who were smokers were told they should light up before they left because there wouldn't be any time to smoke once the search commenced, and they didn't want the smoke affecting other searchers who would be standing very close. At some point into the searches, focus shifted away from the roads and the woods to the waterways, with each body of water being thoroughly searched. Police said they'd looked along the riverbanks and in the water. The police captain at the time was confident they'd been over the area with a fine tooth comb. The state police at the time looked into reports that the missing young man had walked away from the party after there'd been an argument, but the police have not released details of any investigation into this suggestion. At the time, there was no evidence along the road of any kind, neither of an altercation nor of a car accident, nor were there any signs that the young man had tried to walk across a frozen river in the area. Some crime reporters have tried to suggest that he could have been prey to the serial killer Israel Keyes, who lived not far from the location. However, the FBI is certain that Keyes was using a stolen ATM card of another victim, of his, in Texas at the time, of this young man's disappearance, so it didn't seem possible that Israel Keyes was behind Colin Ellis's disappearance. Colin's phone had last been used about 15 minutes prior to the sighting of him flailing his arms. His phone also has never been found. His father says he was in an area he knew like the back of his hand. He'd been born and raised there. He couldn't get lost. However, as has been the case in so many of these disappearances, if this case is indeed tied to the others. Again, he was walking in the opposite direction to that which anyone would have expected him to be walking. He was muscular, he was fit, he was in shape, he was over six feet tall, he was not an easy target. Why was he flailing his arms around? What had happened to him to make him do that? What happened to this next young man called Austin Hudson Lepore? Austin loved numbers, equations and formulas. Described by his mother as having a fierce intellect, he was studying biochemistry at Chicago University and intended to do a doctorate. He was not the partying type. Austin left his off-campus apartment on the evening of Wednesday, June the 12th, 2013, and simply disappeared. He was not seen again apart from perhaps one man who was driving along Chicago's South Loop section when he saw someone who he believes strongly resembled the young man. On the day he went missing, he sat his final exam and had been relaxing with his roommates. He'd been on the internet just before he left, and when he went out, he didn't take his wallet or phone. Days later, the driver, who saw him, came forward to say that he almost ran a young man over, who appeared to look very much like Austin. He said the young man was crossing the road against the traffic lights. The police reported this to the media during the search for Austin. It was said that the driver said the young man was stumbling and unresponsive, and appeared disoriented. On June the 19th, his body was recovered from Lake Michigan. 
It has since been suggested that he'd gone out to chase the storm that was brewing and to watch the water as it came. It's been called a tragic accident. What has not been determined, however, is if it was the same young man that the driver saw, who he himself believed it was, and had called the police to tell them about, why was it that he was stumbling, unresponsive, and disoriented? Also, where had he been in the days he'd been missing? 